Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, JJ, and also thank you to all my listeners around the globe who are tuned in today to never, ever give up hope. For those of you who have followed this show, you know that every story is an incredible one. Every story has a message of hope when people who were going through hopeless situations didn't know how they were going to get out. And with me today is one who fits that bill 100%. Her story is going to resonate with many of you just as it did with me and I'm so excited to hear what she's going to share. No matter where we are in our lives, no matter where we are on this planet, most of us experience a time in our lives when we felt hopeless, whether it was in the area of physical abuse or possibly a sickness or disease of ourself or a loved one, financial problems, problems in education, abuse. There's so many areas that this show has covered as far as people who were completely down and out in the truest sense of that expression to coming from a place of hopelessness to a place where they were able to turn their lives around and experience hope in a new dimension and able to share that story with others to give them hope as well. Never Ever Give Up Hope is now in over 120 countries and I am so pleased for our enthusiastic audience, for each one of you that's listening and believe me, today you are not going to be disappointed. Thank you so much for tuning in. With me is Lindsay Gibson. Lindsay is a writer, a speaker, and a joy coach. Very interesting. Her focus is helping to bring light back to people that brings inner healing. Her memoir is entitled, Just Be, How My Stillborn Son Taught Me to Surrender from a Violent Past. Now, her memoir is still in the works, and we're going to be announcing uh, it when it is available, but her story is going to be shared here today as well. Lindsay has had some incredible heartbreak, as you are going to hear very soon. And the trauma that she has had to deal with in her life included the loss of her baby who was stillborn. Anyone out there who has had a child and lost a child is going to relate, as well as those who are so blessed to never have had to experience that. But Lindsay is going to share her story from a place that will 
resonate with many of you, and I am so happy that she's willing to share that. On the other hand, she is a joy restoration coach, so that tells me that that pain she has overcome, that hopelessness she has overcome, and she is also the founder of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby. She is here today to share her story of that transition, what happened, and how she can help those who want to go from hopelessness to hopeful. So I am so excited to introduce Lindsay Gibson to you today. Hi, thank you so much, Carol. What a wonderful intro. I feel very honored to be on your show. (laughs) Like I said, your story is going to resonate with many. And this is these are stories that people need to hear because there's so many that hurt so deeply and they need to know that somebody like yourself and many others made it. And so I yes, am absolutely. I'm the one that's honored to have you. So oh, welcome. You. Welcome. Now, let's start with a very traumatic experience in your life occurred when you were only 16 years old. You were brutally yes. raped and you almost died. Now, I'm yes. certain that that experience had a huge impact on your life. But I'd like you to share what kind of person you were before the experience. So tell us who Lindsay was up to that point. So, uh, before I experienced that traumatic event, um, I, I was obviously a very different person, although I was going through my teenage years, which we all know how teenagers can be. Um, so I had my challenges and I had my, you know, moments of, you know, that I would be exploring that most teenagers go through. And I loved life. I, I grew up in a very small town here in Connecticut, uh, Southbury, Connecticut, to be exact. And um, I was enjoying life, playing soccer. I had a lot of friends. Um, I made good grades. I was your typical teenager where I definitely gave my mom a hard time many times. But <laughs> everything was normal. You know, I I did. I was a child of divorce. My parents were divorced, but they were both extremely hardworking parents, giving us everything we needed. Uh, I didn't have quite a great relationship with my dad, but I appreciated him for, you know, what he did give me. And, you know, I was just a normal normal kid, really just loving life. And when that happened to me, it completely changed me, completely, as you can imagine. So tell us about that. So I was a virgin when this happened. So I lost my my innocence that night. I lost you know, my sense of security, I lost, uh, life as I knew it was completely lost to me. And so that the type of grief that I went through was losing myself. After it happened, I truly believe God got me through it. And my book will share the many points throughout the actual event and how he was there for me and how he got me out of it. When I ran for my life and my mom found me, she obviously instinctively knew something was wrong. She knew I just came from something, but I didn't tell her. Really? No, I was terrified because I was terrified he was going to come find my mom and I. It was just my mom and I. My brothers were in college at that point. I have two older brothers. And I was terrified if I said something, this man was going to come and find us. And I was very young, so I just didn't know how to filter exactly Uh what was happening at the time. So I begged her to bring me home. She was screaming at me, please tell me where where you came from and what happened. We get home and I was still silent. Now, 
my one of my brothers lived nearby because he attended college nearby and he happened to be home that night and he lay down in bed next to me he just knew something was wrong with me and I fell asleep and then in my sleep I started screaming and having a nightmare saying I wanted to die being scared he ran to my mom and my mom at that point just said we're going to the hospital we are going to the hospital we I cannot I know something happened and we need to figure this out so we get there and I remember walking into the hospital saying to myself, okay, I'm going to be protected now. This is, you know, a place of a hospital or a police station. Those places are supposed mm-hmm. to make you feel safe. Mm-hmm. So I had kind of a little bit of hope walking in there that, you know, they're going to they're gonna fix this for me. But I got in and between the lights, you know how hospitals have those bright lights right. and all the doctors swarming me, the nurses, uh, the psychiatry team, everybody swarming me. I got scared and I shut down. But because my blood work came back with something in it that he forced me to drink, I became the bad guy now. Oh, my word. They, they pulled my mom aside. And, of course, now she was getting questioned in another room because they, they, they wanted to make sure that she wasn't the one doing it, like hurting me. Uh-huh. And because I was 16 in this state, she couldn't demand a rape kit test. And... All of this was going on, and I didn't know how to respond. And but because my blood work didn't come back clean, now I, I was all of a sudden a drug addict, an alcoholic, oh. and the system completely failed me in that moment. Oh my goodness! And the only way they were going to release me is if I went to outpatient clinic every single day after school for drug addicts, like teenage drug addicts. And here I am, this. 16-year-old girl from a small town in Connecticut, never seen the likes of any of this. Now I'm thrown into it. And now the place that I thought was going to keep me safe failed me. So now I'm completely shut down at that point. I remember walking out of the hospital, narrowing my eyes at the doctors and and hatred just started to like overwhelm me. And I just, everything went dark inside me and I shut down. And I still to that point had not told anybody what happened to me. I was afraid to open my mouth any further. Wow. So um, we left and and I had to complete outpatient therapy. And even the people in outpatient with me couldn't understand why I was there. Nobody nobody could understand. They just looked at me and said, really? Why are you here? And it was embarrassing and Uh it was confusing and again as a teenager already being immature on so many levels I couldn't filter again I couldn't filter I didn't understand what was happening to me so I went from a happy go lucky teenager to complete despair and completely hopeless and I also uh, learned how to block it off I went into like the deepest denial that you can think of. Like this didn't happen to me. I just wanted to move on and forget that it even happened. And I was able to do that. I was able to block it out and pretend it just didn't exist anymore. How, how you know, you can imagine by doing yes. that, you know, how I, was, I wasn't happy anymore inside. So how did that manifest itself in, in you? Did you begin to drink or did you uh, begin to possibly be anorexic or as many young girls at that age do? Yes. So a year later, I graduated high school and went to college in Boston. Boston's a great city, a great city to go to college in and a uh, great opportunity there. And I went to Northeastern up there. And yes, I began to drink. Uh, it first started out with partying, you know, just regular college life partying. Mm-hmm. 
but I did it way, way more than normal. But I still maintained my grades. I still went to my internships and I still did what I had to do as a college student. But any time that my anxiety plagued me, I got anxiety attacks every single day. It was like my body was trying to point it out to me to show me I needed to face and process what happened to me, but I just completely ignored it. And then um, I constantly kept myself surrounded by friends. I had a lot of friends up there. I drank, partied any time the anxiety got too out of control. I just drank more. And I didn't take care of myself and I over-exercised. I wasn't bulimic, but I over-exercised because I liked the feeling that it gave me, you know, with Mm. the serotonin rush after you exercise. And so I became addicted to running, sometimes two times a day. I was skin and bones. I was, I'm 5'9", and I was very, I was like tall and really skinny. Um, And I didn't eat very much. So yes, I completely did not take care of myself at all. And college just was a big party. But I also got pregnant. My husband and I also got pregnant with our first daughter my junior year in college. So her pregnancy halted all that drinking. And I actually never went back to it like that. So so, that's so you back up a bit. You didn't tell us when you got married. We got married in 2013. So we had our first daughter, who's almost 11, in 2006. And we have another daughter, Layla, who's one that we had in 2015. Now, let's just back up for a moment. Was your attacker ever caught? No. A year later, he he wasn't caught with me. But a year later, he was brought to uh, – he was charged from doing it to two girls in one night at the University of Connecticut campus. Both of those girls came forward to the police. Both of those girls pressed charges. And he got away with it. Wow. Yeah. Is there any change in the justice system regarding what happened to you in the hospital that night and the way you were treated? I really don't think there has been much. I mean, maybe you have a different opinion. I don't think there's been much change in our justice system when it comes to sexual assault. No. So he. Yeah, what? Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say for for those two women who came forward, even and then I decided to go to the police. This was about a year later and give my statement to help them. It still didn't prosecute him because it was a he said, she said. There was no proof. So he got away with it. At what point did you tell your mother? I didn't tell her directly. She saw me completely change after that experience. Um, and after numerous attempts to beg me to tell her what happened, she started snooping in my room and she did find it. I've been a writer since the age of seven and writing has been my release. And okay. she found my, my journals. Yeah. So that's how she found out. And then we had a conversation about it. That was about six months later. And how did she respond at that time? Did you feel support from her? Absolutely. My mother and I are best friends. Yes. She she was traumatized. No kidding. But at least you knew that that was a safe place, which is what you were looking for initially, weren't you? Yes. Yes. Yep. And I don't I just didn't want to say anything. I mm-hmm. I you know, I was close with my mom even before she found out, but I think between there was a point in that night where when he was he he did try to choke me and he said to me when you're dead none of this will matter and when you hear the words when you're dead your whole life really does flash and the first person that came to my mind was was my mom and you know how they say like soldiers when they're dying they they call for their moms on on a battlefield and it really does happen that way I mean I thought about my mother and and what her life would have been like after I was gone and you know I didn't and that image broke my heart 
in that moment. And it still kind of does when I think about that and her. So I didn't want to tell her. I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to break her heart and tell her what happened to me. But that selflessness on your part is what also got you through because you were focusing on, on your mom yeah. instead of yourself. So that my hat is off to you for that. Now, did you ever blame yourself for being attacked? Yes. I went through the night in my head as many, I'm sure many people who have been in a similar situation do, what could I have done different was this, was a kind of a question that stayed with me for a long time. Um, I blamed myself for the decisions that I made, you know, how I got into his apartment in the first place, but it took me a long time to realize it doesn't, it doesn't matter where I right. was, you know, right. what decision I made. It's, it's the act is his fault. Yes, yes. So. And did you have to struggle with how you felt about yourself as a result of that? Yes. Um, Like I mentioned before, I didn't have a very strong relationship with my dad. And so, therefore, I didn't have a lot of confidence even before this happened. I feel like fathers with their daughters, their job is a lot of, it's building a lot of confidence and strength and inner strength. And um, my dad never really provided that for me. My my mom did her best to do, but my dad and I were just disconnected from each other for many reasons. He's a good man. He's just, we just didn't, we just didn't connect mm-hmm. with each other and mm-hmm. we still don't. And that's okay. Um, and so even going into it, I, I lacked a lot of confidence, even though I was, had a normal life and I, and ha- I had everything I needed and, and they, they took care of me, but I was very, um, you know, I just very self-aware, like, you know, judging myself a lot, even before this happened. So then when that happened, um, and I left the hospital in complete rage and anger, self-hatred started to literally, it was like, it it was like a festering wound. It just built in me and it just stayed that way. Denial made it worse. And, uh, yes, I absolutely judged myself, hated myself. Um, I had no confidence in anything that I ever did. I had no confidence in school, even though I made good grades or someone would tell me I'm doing a good job. I didn't feel like I ever did. And I didn't like the way I looked, so I over-exercised. Um, and I just, every, I judged every aspect about myself. Now, there came a time, however, <laughs> and this is what's, what's really going to be exciting for you to share, <laughs> when there was a pivotal change. Mm-hmm. So without asking you about it, tell mm-hmm. the story. So my, my memoir is about those 13 years from the rape up until the day I, my husband and I said hello and goodbye to our, to our son. Like I told you just a little while ago, we have a 10-year-old daughter. She was our firstborn. So we waited many years to have our next one because, you know, we had her young. And after we got married in 2013, uh, we decided it's time. Let's have our second baby. And we got pregnant with our son pretty much right away. And we were over the moon. We were so excited to finally have another baby. And unfortunately, at 26 weeks gestation, um, he he passed away. He was, he was stillborn. So now here I am a trauma survivor already. Yes. But I was a trauma survivor who was in the dark. And when, when we lost him now, that is a heartbreaking trauma as well. A different kind of heartbreak. I tried to immediately put myself into back into denial. Denial was like my, my best friend. And I knew that if I could just shut it down and I could just pretend that none of this was happening, 
that perhaps I can continue on just as I had been doing for 13 years. But it doesn't work that way. Not with my son, because my son, the love I have for my son was too powerful. And you can't deny that. And so no matter how hard I tried to completely erase the fact that we just lost a baby and that, you know, my life, my heart was broken. I couldn't. I like I tried and tried and tried and it just wouldn't happen because love is powerful, was much, was much more powerful. And his, it's like his whole purpose was to come through and it literally woke me up. I started to become aware of what, you know how, like they say, um, healing is like an onion, like layer by layer by layer. And it's like he took the first layer off on his way back to heaven. And it was like the, even though it was the, like the worst grief of my life at that moment, it became my gift and it awakened me. And it made me realize that I hadn't chosen life up until that point. Yes, I have an amazing husband who loves me tremendously, and I, we're madly in love. We have a wonderful 10-year-old daughter. On the outside, it looks like I'm doing all right, but <laughs> on the inside, not at all. And I wasn't aware of it because of that denial. So that whole experience with my son woke me up to that. And yes, I wish he was here, of course. Every time I see a, th- a boy who's about three, because he would have been three at this point, especially if he has brown hair, because I always envisioned him having brown hair. Uh. Um, yes, I do. I, I might. It's a trigger. And I might sit there for a moment and say, gosh, I wish Joseph was here. His name was Joseph. But the gift that he gave me in return was life. He took my heart to heaven, and he's been handing it back to me, you know, with layer by layer by layer, because ever since that moment, each layer of that onion has been ripped up and I've been processing it and it's been quite an awakening, so to speak. <laughs> no kidding. And your attitude has played a major part, I'm sure, in that process. Yes. yes. So why do you know why you lost your your little boy, Joseph? No, we, we could have done testing. Um we just, my husband and I just chose not to, and we we decided to let it go, and um, they did some initial testing. They tried, when he came out, they ch- checked to see if his cord was, you know, tangled or anything like that. Right. No, they didn't find anything, and then they did some, you know, basic initial testing on the placenta. Everything came back fine, and you know, doctors, they want to they wanna mm-hmm. find out, mm-hmm. and they did tell me 70% of the time, they don't find a reason, so... My husband and I just decided to let it go. So we really don't know. Spiritually, on a kind of a spiritual level, I, I do. But physically, he was fine. We Amazing. Don't. Yeah. And then you had another child? We did. She's our rainbow baby. If you don't know what the term rainbow baby means, it's just, you know, baby after loss. And I got pregnant with her eight months later. And she was born on my son's due date one year later. So. Really? Yeah, so <laughs> it's a bittersweet day for me. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. So obviously, you have been on both sides of trauma. You understand not only what it was going through it, you also, through the loss and then regaining so much as a result of that loss, you understand that you can take your trauma and turn it into joy. And that's what you have done. It doesn't take away the loss. I mean, it's still there. Now, before we talk about 
um, moving forward, how have you been able to process what this young man did to you? And were you able to forgive him? And why? Uh, forgiveness. <laughs> that is a big subject. The, that's a big subject. That's like a whole podcast show. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about it a lot on this show and you can yeah. understand why. Okay. Yes. So forgiveness is, as as Louise Hay says, forgiveness will wipe your slate clean so you can bring more into your heart. And she's right. And forgiving a man who attacked me, the man who attacked me, it's like for some people to hear that, it's like, what? <laughs> what, what do you mean you forgive him? Well, I have to, now, of course, my book is going to go way into depth about this, but processing it for the first time, it really only happened in the last three years. And from the outside looking at me, it might appear that I was backtracking because, you know, I was going right back into panic attacks. I was going back into nightmares. I, you know, every, I, it re- really did look like I was going backwards. But I w- what, what was really happening is I was allowing those feelings of what happened run through me for the first time. I was, instead of pushing them away, mm-hmm. I'd let them come. And it took, from when I started, and it took about a year, literally just sitting there, just letting those scary feelings run. Th- anger l- lasted a long time. Anger was like the first thing on the other side of the door. And underneath anger was my sadness. And I never could get through the anger because that was the first thing they felt coming out of the hospital was I just shut down with that anger. So anger was a big one. And the first thing I noticed that I was doing was I was blaming everybody during that anger period. I yelled at everybody. It was everybody's fault. And I just wasn't wasn't making myself aware that um, the anger really resided in me and it wasn't anybody's fault. So I had to really work on becoming conscious of that. And sitting with that anger, sort of invite, I call it inviting it in. Okay, anger, come sit next to me. Let's, <laughs> let's sit down and let, show me what you got kind of thing. I always pushed it away. Ang- I hated feeling angry. So, But now you wanted to understand it. Now I wanted to understand it. What is it trying to tell me? So I started processing it and letting it, you know, letting myself be angry, just be without any judgment. I stopped judging that anger. I stopped questioning why. I just let it be. And as I did that, I started to soften a little bit. You know, my heart started to soften a little more and a little more, you know, and then, like I said, underneath it was sadness. So next came the sadness. Then the tears came. And I've always been afraid that if I started to cry, I wouldn't stop. But I let myself do it. Again, without judgment. So it was like I went through all these emotions and it was like a roller coaster and then I'd go back to anger then I'd go back to sadness and then I'd go back to you know it was just it really really was a like tornado that I was in and I wasn't able to handle it at 16 but I knew I was ready to handle it now then a couple years ago <laughs> so that was the first thing and then really just working on being aware of them and uh, not, like I said before, not judging them or stopping them, just letting them be. And then once I got through those initial emotions, then I started to become conscious of the fact that the act was over. I had lived for 13 years as if it was still happening. And I put myself there. He, he took me for one night, but it was over. And 
what I realized with my anger was that I was actually kind of angry at myself because after that happened, how I chose to move forward with the hatred, with the darkness, with the denial, with how I treated myself and my body, how I viewed myself, all of that was me. I did, I kind of did that to myself. And so I started to work on self-hatred and anger and, you know, what, what the anger was showing me and it was showing that I hated myself. I hated who I was, but I was kind of putting myself in that. I was keeping myself in victim mode, if that makes sense. Yes. And it was your comfort zone in a strange sort sort of way. Yes, absolutely. And I was doing that to myself. And then I realized the only way out is by choice. So, um, and my heart kept softening and softening as I was facing, facing all of this and processing it. And, and then once I really sat with the, just the idea that the act is over, I had to journal that, that in my journal every single day. The act is over. He is not hurting me anymore. Because on a subconscious level, I was, it was as if he was still hurting me. It was as if I was still in that room in his apartment. But consciously, I wasn't you know, living my life that way. But it, it was still stuck in me. Then, um, as I began to soften a little more, I started to respond to people that way. So meaning how I, how it helped me forgive him. The first steps that I started to do was choosing, you know, peace over war. You know, how people, I used to be very defensive. I could not handle (laughs) constructive criticism for the life of me. My professors probably hated me. I just, you know, and as a writer, you get a lot of, you know, criticism because you want to, they have to edit, you know, and I started to become aware of that. It showed me all the areas of my life that I was lacking in all kinds of ways. And I started to really face those things. And once I started inviting people in with love and giving them love, even if they didn't give me love, it really softened me even more. And that softness um, sort of set me up to be able to forgive him. And, you know, forgiveness is not like a, okay, you know, let's forgive him one time and life's grand or choose joy once and you're good. No, this is like a daily thing that I sometimes have to because I still get triggered. And making myself aware through processing all those emotions of those triggers was another thing I had to do. So it was like step, step after step after step of all these things. And like those layers just kept flying off. And oh man, I, I wasn't prepared for half of them, but it was the most beautiful experience all at the same time. Did you have therapy or were you your own therapist? Oh gosh, no, I had therapy. Oh yeah. I, I had a therapist. Uh, let's see. I did have one through college, but I wasn't committed, and so it didn't stay. And when I lost Joe, I I met the most wonderful therapist who just has been with me ever since. And she helped me with the emotions. You know, she helped me with, you know, once I was uh, starting to face all this, you know, that for the like the psychological part, she helped me with all that. You know, help helping me understand what was happening. And so, yes, absolutely, I had to have support for me. Yes. Now, we're going to talk about your, your coaching, but th- before we do that, I want to ask you, as mm-hmm. a result of your experience, have you been able to help girls who have gone through the same thing? Yes. Yes. And, and in, what capa- in what capacity? Um, they, they have to be ready. You know, I, there, there's a place for coaching and there's a place for therapy. Uh, they're two different things, but they're both needed. And 
I don't I don't know if you heard the word choice <laughs> while I was talking before, <laughs> but choosing joy and choosing to move forward. I, know, I, I, I like to use the term moving forward, not moving on, because you never get over uh, someone you lost, like in, in, in terms of grief, um, because for my son, I'm always going to love him. So I'm never yes. going to get over him. Yes. So I move, but I made, I made a choice to move forward. And that choice, you have to be, you have to be, want it and you have to choose it and you have to be ready for it. So that's, that's the type of, you know, uh, coaching that I do. Um, but if I don't see that readiness, then, you know, I might point them to other resources before they work with me. And what happens when even you yourself want to revert back to that pain? How do you pull yourself out of that? I do have bad days. We all do. I mean, regardless of what you've gone through, you're going to have good, th- good days and bad days. On my really bad days, sometimes I just surrender to it and I eat a bowl of ice cream. I'm not kidding. I will sit <laughs> down. I mean, it is what it is. We're humans, right? And so on those really bad days, I, and I can't use the tools that I have in my toolbox to try to reverse it and, and try to conquer my my thoughts and choose that joy that I always talk about. I just say, all right, okay, I'm going to sit down and be sad then. My body and my mind and my heart needs to be sad right now. So I'm going to be sad. I might journal. I might exercise. I might do something to try to you know, work it through my body. Um, but on those really bad days, again, yes, I'll just sit down and just let it be. Just be. That's my whole motto. <laughs> Are you going to be able to share this with your your daughters? My 10-year-old knows what happened. Oh, she does. Okay. She absolutely does. Yes. Um my my daughter, she I swear, she's like an old old soul. Mm. <laughs> she she's one of those and she yes, I had her young. So so that was challenging. But the minute I locked eyes with her after she came out, it was like we're, we're like soul sisters. She has been the most comforting and beautiful presence in my life uh, ever since day one. And over the last few years, you know, she was grieving. She's she has been grieving her brother as well. And, you know, how old was she? She was almost eight when that happened. So, so, but she grieves in her own way. And we've, my husband and I have been very conscious of her grief and trying to help her work through it. And, um, but she's also been conscious of my grief. You know, you're so connected to your children and she, however I feel is how she feels, you know, and one day, and I'm not making this up. One day she sat down and she just looked at me and she said, mom, and this was about six months ago, I'd say it was last summer. And she said, mom, what's going on with you? And just like that, and I said, oh, okay, Dr. Lily. Um, (laughs) And she just said, no, I feel it. I feel your pain, Mom, and I'm not talking about Joe. What happened? What happened to you? Why are you you so sad? And I didn't realize that through through my journey of healing and processing the rape over the last few years, it's almost like I forgot Lily was sitting there staring at me through the whole thing. And yes, I w- a lot of it was on my own and alone, but you can't hide everything from your kids. Uh-huh. You know, so it, your kids watch everything you do. That's right. And we just, I looked at my husband and he looked at me and we just knew, okay, all right, so let's tell her what happened. Now, we didn't give her complete details of the night or anything like uh-huh. that. Um, we, we just d- did an overview. But what she really wanted to know was, you know, is, it, is this why I... It, 
I have been sad her whole life. And when she asked me that question, I said, what do you mean sad my whole life? And she said, I'm not talking about if like you and daddy get in an argument or something like that. She said, but mom, I can read it on your face. And, oh my it, goodness. and it made me realize everything I've learned in birth psychology, because I was a psych major in college and zero to three was like my most favorite area of psychology, is that you know, you can't, you really can't hide from your kids, you know, as much as you want to, they're so smart if they really, really want to observe you. So, and she's been observing me and I told her yes. And I was honest with her and she started to cry, but then she hugged me and she said, I'm so proud of you for writing this book, mom. You're going to stop this. You're going to stop this in our family because, or, or, or in all, because we've had sexual assault in our family, unfortunately. It's kind of <sighs> down the lines. And, um, and we did share that with her. So she thinks my book will be sort of like the cord cutting. Oh, yes. Family. I'm telling you, this girl is an old soul. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, she's so. wise. Obviously, she's very wise. And, you, and, and we often don't give them credit for that. Well, tell us about your self-study. Okay. on your website and it's entitled journal back to joy it's designed to assist people who have gone through trauma etc and they're choosing joy after mm-hmm. grief or after trauma it sounds intriguing so share that with us yeah so you know a little while ago i mentioned tools in my toolbox and so what i mean by that is every day i have to choose joy um I think everybody does. And sometimes it's multiple times a day, depending on how the day goes. And the seven-week writing series is a weekly online course that's sent to you via email. And if you need additional coaching with it, I could do that for, for a different price where I'm kind of helping you through it. But it's a therapeutic writing series, and I go through diff- all the t- tools that you would need to be able to choose joy from uh, learn to cultivate gratitude in your life, forgiveness, like I said, that's a, that's a big one, mm-hmm. um, toxic thoughts, what your thoughts do to your mind, body, and soul, and how to control them, and designing a new lifestyle. Uh, we go through so many different areas of all that, and it's a way, way to, to get it from mind to paper. That's what um, therapeutic writing really is. It's getting it out. And, and just putting down what comes first in your mind and helping you organize all of the overwhelming thoughts that you might have in your head. And then once you can do that, then you can use the tools that I give through it to be able to control that. It's, it's putting some, it's, it's, it's like going from unhealthy grief to healthy grief. Cause once you have grief in your life, it's, it's always there. I, I think, but you could, you could get very unhealthy with your grief. And if you uh, let your toxic thoughts, you know, spiral out of control, or you you have no forgiveness in your life, I talk about self love, that's really, really big um, through the process. And, and it's just spread over like a seven week period. Um, And but they can keep it forever and just reuse those tools over and over. It's practice. That sounds excellent. And that's on your website, which will have all that information. Yes. You sound like the perfect example of the epitome of joy. This is what I was thinking as I've been listening to you. And the reason I say that is because personally, I believe that joy really does come out of sadness. 
Yes. It's it's a different type of joy because it's one of rejoicing, of realizing that's where I was, but that's not where I am now. Mm-hmm. And so there, you know, it it lends to rejoicing over someone who has possibly not suffered trauma or grief and have been able to avoid that through whatever time in their life they happen to be. And there are people like that. And there's nothing, you know, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we don't we don't wish that they, you know, could grow up by having trauma. I mean, right, right. Not everybody that. has trauma in their <laughs> exactly. life. Every, everybody's got a different walk exactly. in their life. But everybody experiences loss. Everybody. You can't get through life without right. loss. It, and it exactly. could be loss of a job or it doesn't ha- have to always be loss of a person. So loss is a part of life. And therefore, grief is a part of life. And learning how to cope with that. Yes. And learning the gift of grief. So, Okay. Expound a little bit on that, the gift of grief. So the gift of grief, um, when I, like I was mentioning before, when I lost my son and he kind of, that whole experience just, just woke me up. It just slammed my feet back on the ground. I was grounded and it was like, woof, here I am woken up to all this and I cannot hide or run or put myself in denial like I did before. That, that was done. Love was, was winning the war. Denial might have won the battle for so many years, but love is much stronger. Um, I have a quote in my book that says, love is the reason we grieve and love is what's going to bring us back from grief. And what I learned about myself um, through waking up was a gift. It was like an inner wisdom that I never knew about life. It brought me back to my faith. It gave me hope again. And now I'm able to help others this way. So to me, that's a gift. Incredible. And absolutely incredible the way you the way you describe that. That's absolutely perfect. I'm going to use that. I'm going to borrow that from you. <laughs> you can borrow away. <laughs> anyway, is there anything that you want to say in conclusion? It's been such a pleasure, Lindsay, having you. Um, as I mentioned, not only sharing your grief and but sharing the forgiveness aspect and sharing your joy and sharing the transition and sharing what you learned. All of us, no matter where we are in our lives, can take something from what you said today. And I hope that many of the ones in the audience will connect with you, will check out your website and, of course, your upcoming book, which we will be announcing at a future date. And your your self-study that you have, all the tools that you're giving – But the bottom line is we're going to share your joy because you are obviously one that practices what you preach. And it's beautiful to say, you know, to see. And I really sincerely appreciate that. So anything in conclusion that you would like to summarize or possibly a call to action, whatever you would like. Yes. I want to talk about just for one moment, faith, because I'm not talking only about religion. We, it, it doesn't matter what you believe in. I'm going to talk about faith. I firmly believe that we are born with faith and self-love. We come from pure love. It is like our birthright. And it's sort of like that, that self-love is a seed within us. But then, you know, life tragedies happen or sadness happens or disappointment happens. Whatever happens in your life um, that seed can kind of get lost within you. And, you know, if you water a seed, it's going to grow. Well, what happened to me with my son's loss is that seed within me, um, and the tragedy of losing him and 
you know, it didn't throw me back into despair. It redirected me. So I use that term a lot. And I want people to know that, you know, if it doesn't have to be a tragedy or a trauma, a trauma, if you get um, something bad in your life that happens, or whether it's like you could lose a job or um, you, you break up with your boyfriend or you know, anything, it's a redirection. And having, having faith that you're going to get to the other side of that redirection is, is something that I really work with with people because having faith is like the hardest thing ever. Trusting something that you don't see, that is like, <laughs> that is super, super hard. And I can help people like rewater that seed that's always in us, that joy. It's always in you. It's like passing clouds. The sky never goes away, but the clouds just pass on through. And that's how you got to look at your, um, all your disappointments in life. Let's let's reiterate that quote. The sky doesn't go away. Yep. <laughs> the sky never the clouds, goes away, but the clouds do. The clouds will pass through. Oh, I love that. Is that yours? <laughs> yes. I <laughs> sometimes when I do po- like I have a lot of poetic pieces. Um I do have a gift of grief on my website, uh poetic piece. I I, I tend to use analogies a lot. <laughs> Well, that's how you can express yourself. As I, as you were talking about many of the things that you were going through, the thought that was running through my mind is there really aren't words in our language to describe a lot of the things that you're trying to share. I know. And, I know. you know, that's why this helps because what it does is it creates something for people to actually grab onto and think about. And so it yep. goes to a deeper level. But yep. to just use words, it's like you get tongue tied because you yeah. can't describe how deep those feelings are. And each of us, you know, do this in in our own way so and i really appreciate the way that you did it and oh, poetic you. is beautiful analogies perfect i love it oh thank you thank you so thank you Lindsay. uh you had so much to share and so much that we are going to be able to um grab onto no matter where we are in stages of grief or stages of joy or pain or unforgiveness or forgiveness i mean you covered it all Yes, great. (laughs) So as long as we can take that and chew on it for a while, and I know that it'll benefit many people. And I thank you so much for being an awesome, awesome guest. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you so much, Carol. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope, featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.